welcome to the Naughty Child Podcast. With me, Richard. And me, Polly. I'm the dad. And I'm the daughter. Getting called out in the middle of the night to go carve a cow to do a cesarean. It's the closest thing to farming you can do in the middle of Bristol. And then mum put on YouTube and then now it's there for the world to see, so it's great. But England were very chirpy. And I think I only cried like four times, but they just happened to get all four times on camera, okay? Lock myself in a procedure room. Whether it shows something about me or whether it just shows I'm a little bit stupid. I love people and I love cricket. Suddenly I'm out on a helicopter because I can go on a glacier. And... It's been the longest year ever, hasn't it? <laughs> My dog is now called Jimmy Anderson. So I learned the anthem because I really genuinely thought they would make us sing it. Hey Polly, it's half term for me this week. Well, that's lovely, but I do not get half term anymore. So I've had uni as normal this week. Tomorrow, we're recording Wednesday night tonight because tomorrow, Thursday night, I'm coming to Manchester. Yeah, we're going to have a big night out in Manchester. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually won't yeah. be joining, so that's a shame. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, so we'll see you. But um, but me and your mum are going to go to see a very nice concert in Manchester. It's not the Happy Mondays or the Inspiral Carpets or the Smiths. It's the Halle Orchestra. Bit of culture. Very cultured. I was going to say, I, I didn't actually know who you, who you were seeing, but um, yeah, no, I, I won't be joining, unfortunately. But it'll be nice to see you anyway. It will be very nice to see you. I'll see you a lot this week, which I might have to have a bit of a break after that. <laughs> oh, oh, Polly, I do need to do a full formal apology. This doesn't oh, happen do. very often on, on the podcast. Uh, but uh, Holly Armitage, I was very misinformed about you, Holly. I know Holly's a big fan of the pod, listens every week. Hence why she's come on the podcast before, obviously. Mm, she's not come on the podcast before. No. Um. I, I did say that Holly Armitage, was um, it was amazing her getting called up for England at the age of 31. Well, she's actually 26. I, I was misinformed. I, though it was I, My source of information was wrong. And I'm really sorry, Holly. You don't look 31. You don't look 26 either, actually, to be fair. But it's right, been a you... tough life. In the North, it's tough, isn't it? You were going to have to make another apology next week after this. <laughs> oh, well, no. Oh, it's okay. Polly will edit it. It's fine. No, I, I'm going to stitch you up because <laughs> I don't care. Well, because the first thing I think I was ever told whenever we were spoken about sources or anything relating to, like, not just journalism, this is, like, secondary school, don't use Wikipedia as your source because it's unreliable. And what did you do? You use Wikipedia. So it's your own mistake. And I'm really sorry. I'm glad you've I'm owned really, up to it. Holly, I'm really, I'm really sorry. I'm really oh. sorry. But really pleased you got picked for England at the age of 26. And you could have a really long England career now for the next 10 years. She's definitely not going to want to come on the podcast now. I've insulted her. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, Katie Levick's been on twice and, and we did nothing but insult her <laughs> all the time. And it didn't seem to matter. Oh, yeah, that's true. Anyway, it's been a good week for Amy Hunter, who very deservedly got the ICC Player of the Month award. Good old Amy Hunter. Well, good young Amy Hunter, 18 years old. And she is just doing amazingly, isn't she? So it's another century, of course, this month in the tour of Zimbabwe. And 
Ireland are just looking really good. We've said this, I think we've said this every week, haven't we, in the yeah. last over the last few weeks. But um it just shows she's on a rich vein of form at the moment. Ireland are are developing rapidly as a team and uh, really excited about that. It's also cool because it's voted for by the public. Obviously, players can vote as well. Um, and I know Cricket Island did push it quite a bit and be like, vote for Amy, whatever. But at the end of the day, the people voted for Amy. It was a democracy. And um, we love to see that. Yeah, Belfast best batter. Well done, Amy Hunter. What did you just say? Belfast, Belfast best batter. It, it was alliteration. Oh, very, very nice. Really added to it. Um, it's been a bad week or longer than a week for Laura Wolvart, who, and I, I said, I think the two things are linked, that she's taken up the South African captaincy and suddenly she's had a massive dip in form and has not been scoring runs. Yeah, it's, it's she's on a bit of a run, isn't she? So she uh, just before Christmas, she got a century against Bangladesh. Since then, uh, one of the ODIs, she got 58 not out, which was excellent, but her other scores have been low. And in fact, in the ODI series, she got, she was out for four, she was out for a duck, and she was out for three. So she's due a big score. The test match starts tomorrow. Um, so I'm thinking it's going to be uh, Laura Wolfart's chance to get some runs. I, I say, wait for the prediction. Laura Wolfart's going to hit a century in that test match. Okay, you did. You actually stitched me up there because, well, no, I stitched myself up because I didn't listen to what you said off air. So I didn't hear you read her scores out and actually it doesn't sound as bad as I thought. So maybe that was a little bit dramatic. So it's been a bad few weeks. Well, I think, no, I think it has. I mean, I think when you are as good a player as Laura Wolvar, that's a good point. Three ODIs back to back against Australia, you would want to score significant runs in at least one of those three. And to to fail in all three is unfortunate, and especially when you're captain, there's that sense that you want to be leading from the front. So yeah, I think I think that's fine. I think I think Laura, I know she listens to the pod every week. She'll be agreeing with us, and she'll be up in her game for the test match. Okay, that, that's lovely to hear. We don't really have anything else. Well, I don't have anything else to discuss. What I do want to ask is: this week's been a little bit busy. We've had Pancake Day, Show Tuesday. Valentine's Day today, my obviously my favourite day of the year, as you can tell, uh, hence why I'm doing a podcast. And uh, what's it called? Ash Wednesday, all within the same 48 hours. It's been busy. Yeah, I, I'm more of an Ash Wednesday person than a Valentine's Day person, I would say, Paul. I, Polly, I'll, I'll bring you, if I find some flowers tied to a lamppost on my way into Manchester, I'll bring them to you tomorrow. Well, do you know, I actually got a Valentine's Day card today. There you go. So it's it's not all bad. And there was a lot of people giving out flowers, but don't know, know who I'm going to give it to. So, um, yeah, didn't didn't actually get a flower. I don't really like them either. So. But hey, Polly, who's our guest this week? I, I, I don't know. I know we've got two in the can. I don't know, which, don't know which one it is. You did just ruin my beautiful segue, but that's fine. Oh. Anyway, <laughs> um, our guest this week, I'm going to go for Laura Jolly. Because I think that works quite well with speaking about Laura Wolvart, speaking about Australia and South Africa, the test match coming up. We, last in last Friday was it? We woke up very early. Well, you didn't. It's normal time for you. Not normal time for me. Um, I got up at 6am to chat to Laura Jolly, who is an Australian journalist who just knows everything about the Australian women's cricket team and is very much embedded within that environment. Um, came over here to cover the ashes and just has so many good 
stories and experiences about Australia over the last decade really um, and gave us some really really interesting insight into particularly the changes within the Australian team so stay tuned for that and enjoy our chat with Laura Jolly. So how did you first get into cricket and how did your interest in the sport come about? Um, So I've loved cricket since I was about 10 years old and it was when I was about 14 or 15 that I realised I was never going to be any good at it in terms of playing Um, and that was when I first decided that maybe I could write about it instead but it took um, until I was about 27 for me to actually get into working in cricket Um, so it took on a six-month contract with the Men's World Cup in 2015 and was lucky enough to get kept on by Cricket Australia at the end of all that. So so presumably you did other work in journalism uh, before that, sort of developed a, a career in journalism? Yeah, I studied journalism at uni and, and then worked at a local newspaper on and off for um the first six years of my career with a, a gap year travelling around Europe and England in the middle. So I guess when you went into journalism, did you always know that cricket was kind of the destination you wanted to get to or did you try other avenues of journalism? Uh, So I started off doing just sort of general sports journalism at the local paper. So there was a bit of cricket in there, but also Australian rules football and netball. I even had a a lawn bowls column for a while there and sort of did a bit of everything. And then um, when I got back from travelling around Europe, I worked in general news for a couple of years as well, writing about the local councils and, and crime and all that, which was long enough for me to figure out that that's not the kind of journalism I wanted to be doing. And, and that was what sort of prompted me to take a bit of a risk with a, a short term contract to try and get myself into cricket because I was pretty desperate to get back into sport at that point. Brilliant. So so since 2015, um, you've worked for uh, Cricket Australia. Tell me a little about uh, what that role involves. Uh, it's sort of evolved over the years. Um, sort of just part of the, the Cricket Australia digital team um, as one of their journalists. So mostly it's about writing stories for cricket.com.au and the, the Cricket Australia app. Um, but over the years, that sort of, when I came on board, I was doing a bit of everything. Um, but then they realised there was really a need to have someone focused on women's cricket. So that's when I sort of got the title of women's cricket editor and started focusing my time on that pretty much full time. Um, in the early days too I had to run the team's social accounts and and all sorts but we're, we're lucky we're a bit better staffed these days and have some specialists in those roles. Yeah I mean it's, it's interesting isn't it being a journalist and essentially working for the people that you're writing about does that sometimes feel difficult or are they very good in terms of giving you free reign in terms of what you write and what you say? Yeah it is a tricky one and you know often there'll be stories that um, independent media can touch that that perhaps we can't, it's not really something for us to wade into or we have to be a little more sensitive about what we say, knowing um, you know, who, where it's been published and kind of who we're speaking on behalf of. Uh, but I think in terms of the team and the staff around the team over the last eight years, I've been able to build up a pretty good relationships and a lot of trust too, that they, they know that um, you know, I've got some pretty good lines on, on what I know can be reported and what can't and I'm always happy to have a chat to them too and work through how they would like things to get out there um but yeah it does mean that there's a lot that goes on that doesn't get reported because it's it's not the the place for it and I guess over the last few years you've seen Australia win pretty much everything be extremely successful 
How do you think that success has come about? Do you think it's multiple factors? Do you think it's leadership? All those sort of things. It's a really good question. Uh, the first two World Cups I covered, they didn't win them. And I, I started to think I was the curse because I think they'd won four or something in a row before that across the formats. Uh, but I think really there was the the professionalism that came up first for the international team, but then obviously also the domestic level as well. I think when you, they made all the state players and WBBL players professionals and that just created all this depth that Australia's been able to draw on and and use over the last few years and also those two World Cup losses I think it's sort of been written about extensively that after 2017 in England they really went away and had a hard look at themselves and made some changes to personnel and also to their approach that sort of triggered that um, pretty epic run of success they they had for the, the years after. And it was a, an incredible and I'm using the past tense here quite carefully. It 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 was an incredible run of success. So, in fact, since that 2017 game, between then and six months ago, the Edgebaston T20 in the Ashes, I think Australia lost 11 games in total across all formats. But since that Edgebaston game six months ago, they've lost nine games in total in six months. So what's going wrong? That's, that's a really good stat. I hadn't looked at it like that. Um, I think it's, it's probably a, a few things. Part of it is definitely um, the retirement of Meg Lanning or her absence during the Ashes and combined with the, the loss of Rachel Haynes a year earlier and, and Matthew Mott's departure. I think that's, you know, left Australia needing to sort of change how they, they approach things and maybe Elisa Yearly's needed a bit of time to settle into her role, um, even though she's been around this team for a very, very long time. So I reckon that's part of it. Also, too, just I think England uh, are a better team than they were in the previous Ashes a couple of years earlier. I think they've got a lot of confidence now. They just had to get one win over Australia and then they remembered, oh, yeah, this team's not invincible. We definitely can't beat them, which is um belief I think India have always had, even though they, they haven't necessarily got home in the big matches. So I think one, now that teams know that they can beat Australia, it's it's probably going to keep happening more regularly, too. Yeah, I guess the unfortunate thing for for other teams though is that Australia have they've had professionalism for a while. So they've got incredible youth like Phoebe Litchfield being a starting player of every single match, guaranteed to be on that team sheet. Um so I guess who are some of the other names of of young Aussies? Perhaps they haven't made their debut yet, but they're kind of waiting in the wings to to come into that squad. Yeah, it has been cool seeing Phoebes come in the last couple of years. And I think one of the Interesting things too, um, something M. Colin and I did a few months ago was we came up with an uncapped 11, which is kind of the, the best 11 players in Australia that had never played for Australia. And there were a lot of players on there who probably would have had really long careers for other countries, people like Georgia Redmayne and that. But in terms of the youth, I think, um, you know, obviously Phoebe and Annabelle Sutherland are two really young players who are going to be part of that team for a really long time. Then there's like, you've got players like Charlie Knott, um, and Georgia Bowl coming up the ranks as well, who I think when they get their chance will be really good. Um, and Tess Flintop is another one too, who I think she had a little bit of a taste of the 100 last year and um, she looks like she's a pretty exciting prospect. Now, you know, it's interesting. We, we, we mock slightly about Australia's poor run of form at the moment in bilateral series. But I guess where Australia are really, really good is in tournament cricket. And that, that's a, a real pattern that we've seen over the course of the last well, almost decade. So it talk, talk me through, for example, the experience of the World Cup. Um, was, it, was it this time last year? Was it, was it? Yeah. 
Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, they seem to just have this. And maybe when you've won enough World Cups and you've got yourself out of tricky positions enough, you just have that belief. And I think that's what served them really well because they could easily or almost should have lost that semi-final to India and South Africa and the Commonwealth Games gold medal match too. But somehow they just hold on and hold on and hold on. You know, the, the big moments or little moments like Elise Perry's save on the boundary, which pretty much was the moment that won the match and just those little things, I think. And also they've probably had a psychological edge over some of these other teams too. Like it's happened a few times now that India have been in those winning positions but have then fallen away and not got over the line. So it's probably a bit of a psychological edge as well as just being able to nail those little one percenters. Yeah, it was interesting you mentioned the Commonwealth Games as well. Of course, um, it, we were based in Birmingham, so we went to, to loads. In fact, it was such a treat. It, it was you, you couldn't make it up, really. It was like a dream having all the top women's teams playing about three miles down the road from where we live and, and just being able to go along and, and watch a game most days. But Australia were amazing uh, in that tournament, just a steamroller their way through. And as you say, in the final, they really w- got themselves in a losing position and still managed to win it, which is, again, it's just what Australia do. Yeah, it is. And I think something that was really a, a hallmark of the Meg Lanning era, I guess you'd say, is um, she seemed to be, and she and Ray Chains were really the two that, dug them out of a lot of those positions or just Meg's captaincy in the field I think she just had a way of finding those ways to win when they, they're under pressure so um it's probably one of the things that this new leadership group are going to have to work out to now that, that Meg's gone yeah I guess that inevitably when you change personnel there's a kind of culture change that goes on with that and just um looking at um Alyssa Healy, just her body language on the field and so on. She seems very relaxed. She uh, she smiles a lot. She laughs a lot, an incredible amount. You know, even um, it, when Beth Mooney got went out at the non-strikers end um, it, the other day, she just <laughs> her reaction was just to laugh. Um, I guess what is that a big change? Do you think in terms of team culture from having Meg Lanning? And again, I guess just as an observation, her her body language is a is a bit more conservative a bit less demonstrative yeah they are two very different people and I think pretty different leaders too Meg was um you know always super super serious on the field and often didn't see her crack too many smiles whereas um Elisa Healy's default position is to as you said laugh at everything so I don't think too much has changed culturally within the team in terms of you know how they relate to one another and their sort of ethos that they live by haven't changed but it probably is a, a bit of a shift in having, you know, a different style of, of captain in Elisa Healy and someone who approaches life um, a bit differently. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure how much of a change it's made in the dressing room, though. And kind of back to the Commonwealth Games, as someone who, who covers the game, how different was that to covering a bilateral series or a World Cup? Because I suppose it's a multi-sport tournament. Uh, you think about the Olympics happening in, in 2028. I imagine that would be quite similar. How different was that for you? It was so different um, and it was really cool. I'd never been um, you know, at something like that before and I was sort of staying off on my own. The team were in the village and I was at a, a hotel doing my own thing. But even just being able to like finish up at the cricket for the day and then our media passes got us into everything. So I could just go and watch athletics at night. <laughs> that was a, a really cool part. I think I watched basically every sport I could possibly get to when the cricket wasn't on. Um, you know, netball, weightlifting even. So that was really cool. I think it was similar for the, the all the cricketers too, that for the first time they weren't the only ones at a major tournament. They were 
part of a, a giant Australian team and um, probably were the, the small fish in the pond for a change. They were the ones getting starstruck, like seeing these champion swimmers around and, and people who they really look up to. So it was a cool experience and I really hope they find a host for 2026 because it would be um, a real shame if they didn't get to do it again. Yeah, we loved hosting it. It was just, a, the whole thing was just amazing. And yeah, and like you, we got to go to quite a few other events that we wouldn't normally go and watch. And and that was the great spin-off of cricket as well, because loads and loads of people who would not normally watch cricket ended up getting tickets, you know, either in the sort of random ballot or or just they thought they'd give it a go to go and watch the cricket and absolutely loved it. And it was a, it was a great experience for the city. Although the city's now bankrupt, so maybe that's the reason why no one wants to host it. <laughs> um, that's cool, though. But, but there you go. Anyway, last summer was, of course, the Ashes. Now, the memories I've got of, of last summer are just absolutely amazing. It was one of the greatest um, Ashes series uh, that we've seen. Tell us a little bit about what it was like from on the inside of the Australian camp. Yeah, it was, um, it was just such an awesome series, like... I know that the Australian team probably prefer to win everything, but as someone reporting on the game and watching the game, it was so cool to see it be so competitive and have England particularly stage that fight back after losing the test in the first T20. And there's a little bit of a sense of, oh, no, here we go again. It's going to be another one-sided series. But um, for England to come back the way they did and for it to go right down to Taunton was really, really cool. I also think um, the scheduling and the venues was just a dream like so many bucket list grounds for the players and, and for me to work at too. Like going and working at Lords was one of the coolest things I've done in cricket, I think. But absolutely loved it. Yeah, I loved it. I thought the test match at Trent Bridge was absolutely amazing. And and it was great to have a five-day test match where you could get a, a proper result at the end of it. And it, you know, it just felt like it could have gone either way uh, for, for most of that game. And there were just some key pivotal moments that that swung it in Australia's way but it was it was just great to see the players having I suppose the time to show their skills you know to see you know Tammy Beaumont get um a double century you know to see so many of the Australian players you know put in incredible performances like Ash Gardner yeah it felt like the first test I've covered where the topic of conversation throughout hasn't been when should they declare to make this a competitive game you know how are we going to manufacture this into getting a result it was the first test I've seen the women play in a while where it just played out naturally. It got to come to its natural conclusion, and that was one of the coolest parts. Like For a while there, it looked like Tammy was never, ever going to stop batting. And that was one of the more brilliant innings I've ever seen. And then the way you know, Ash Gardner came out and bowled on the final day was um, was really memorable as well. Yeah, I was going to say that evening session on, I think it was day four, where... You know, you th- I well, I personally thought, oh, okay, England have this, and then suddenly it flipped, and they were what, three wickets down or something. You think, right, the Aussies have got this. It was all that drama and that narrative was was absolutely fantastic. And kind of skipping ahead to Taunton, what were your feelings on that final day? Because I found it really strange that England had thrashed Australia and they'd won the series. So then they lifted like they got the series medals, then shuffled out the way. Australia came in and they'd retain the Ashes, but hadn't won it so to speak so it was just a really strange thing because it almost seemed that like England was slightly happier than Australia yeah I think England definitely were happier than Australia in that moment it's a bit of a weird one like I've got no issue with the team retaining a trophy I think someone has to be the holder but perhaps you don't need to have the uh the lifting of a trophy with the the ticker tape and all that happening um 
it's a bit a bit of a weird sensation when you actually haven't won the ODI series, as you mentioned. And yeah, Australia were were pretty gutted that they didn't get the outright win in the end. So I think that was um, you know showed with the reactions on the field and also with how happy England obviously were. Yeah, and we actually went to Dublin um, a, a few days after that and and saw the the final ODI in Dublin. And I think what's what struck me um, then was these this team must be absolutely exhausted. They must be absolutely shattered. We were shattered just watching the Ashes, <laughs> never mind playing it. But yeah, they went out and just put on this superb performance and you know were just so switched on they you know they entertained everyone I just thought it was such a, a professional way of going about their business yeah that was a, a strange tour normally you finish in ashes and everyone gets to have a bit of a holiday um to go on to Dublin for 10 days was um a weird one um it was a cool city to go to I think everyone was quite happy to that it was in Dublin and you know to get a taste of, of that place but um yeah there were some very very tired cricketers at the end but uh, I think in that last game you mentioned, um, Phoebe Litchfield and Annabelle Sutherland just really, really enjoyed getting that opportunity to open together. And that probably gave everyone a little bit of a, a pep in their step. Well, it did. It just meant they could put their feet up for the, end, the entire second innings. <laughs> <didn't they? laughs> exactly. Yeah, I guess it was it was weird as well, because after the Ashes, I think I felt quite optimistic about England and the future of England. And then you see two of Australia's youngest players get centuries and you're like, oh, OK, it's not going to be that easy for, for the next 10 years or so. You're currently in the middle of a series against South Africa and um, it's it's proving to be quite tough for you. What are your predictions for uh, the rest of the ODI series and then going into the test match? Yeah, it's been um, it's been really cool. I think a lot of us were a bit worried when all the retirements kept rolling in from South Africa, um, particularly Shadnam Ismail. That we just thought, oh no, this you know this could be a really inexperienced South African side that comes across here to play this multi-format series. Um, you know, it could end up being a bit one-sided, but they've been absolutely brilliant. Laura Wolfart hasn't won a toss and has barely made a run yet, and they're they're still you know um, won all in the ODIs and won a T20. So that's been awesome to see these kids um, come in for South Africa and play really well. I think Australia will be a bit more on their game in the, the final ODI. I, I don't. I think they will get that one and go into the test 8-4. Um, and, yeah, the test will be really interesting. South Africa obviously haven't played one since the one in England a couple of years ago, but um, they put in a pretty good show there. So I don't think it'll be easy for Australia by any means over in Perth. So I guess in the calendar, there's a lot of big things coming up for Australia. I think about the the World Cup in October time. What are kind of the things that Australia need to iron out between now and perhaps then, I guess. It's showing up at the moment that T20 isn't their best format. And I think there were even signs of that creeping in in that World Cup in South Africa with um, you know, a few wins that they perhaps shouldn't have got away with but did under the, the pressure of it being a major tournament. And one area I think they need to look at is how they go about setting totals. Uh, I think four of their last five losses have, have come when they've batted first. So they um, probably need to hopefully that first a few times when they go over to Bangladesh next month and, and try and sort that out because they've got a ridiculously deep batting order. It's just like they haven't quite worked out how to get the most out of it yet and how to pace that when setting. So um, that's probably the area they need to address and then maybe figure out what their best bowling attack looks like too. Yeah, well, uh, I was about to say we wish Australia well, but uh, we, <laughs> we um, I can't really say that. Uh, yeah, I hope that's I hope fair. they remain competitive even though they're having a really tough time at the moment. Hopefully they can 
hang in there. Laura, thank you so much for your time. It's been amazing, the insights into the um, game in Australia that you've given to us. I uh, just want to uh, wish you all the best for the rest of uh, this season and, um, and in your work with uh, Cricket Australia. Thanks for having me on. It's been really nice to chat to you both. I so enjoyed that chat. It feels like when you talk to Laura, she's connecting you to some of the biggest moments in women's cricket history. And she's been there on the on the inside of those Ashes wins and World Cup wins and so on. I particularly enjoyed sharing the stat with her about the number of games that Australia have lost since that T20 at Edgebaston. Yeah, I remember when you said that, it was quite shocking because... I think it's quite easy to get caught up in the Australia are invincible. And like, it is, it's kind of true. Like they are the best team in the world and that's undeniable. But actually that stat was like, oh wow, the last year or so, there's been quite a big shift in the team's performance and consistency um, and they are now beatable. So to get Laura's insight in that was was really interesting as, as well. And to be fair, of all the teams, she probably has the best job ever because she actually gets to see her team lift a lot of trophies and win a lot of things. <laughs> she does and a lot I imagine, of partying. I was going to say, I imagine that's a lot easier than having to write about the team losing again, the team having a lot of problems, the team choking, missing out on trophies, that sort of thing. So, well, in recent weeks and months, she's had to expand her vocabulary, hasn't she? I was going to say that the job's probably changed a little bit um, <laughs> in the last couple of months. Uh, but no, it again, really interesting to chat to Laura and kind of find out all about Cricket Australia. Brilliant. Um, so that's it for this week, Paul. What what do people need to do if they want to follow us and all that sort of stuff? So you can follow us on social media, our Instagram, our TikTok and Naughty Child Podcast. And our Twitter is Oro Child Podcast. We'll be back next week with another guest. Actually, a East Langs guest, mm. but not Thunder. Da, da, da. Oh, 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 oh,